Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome John Roth back to the show. John has written a fascinating new book. It's titled Sources of Holocaust Insight, and I think it might be different than any of the other books I've discussed in doing 110 or so odd interviews for the show. It's a reflection, a tribute, maybe kind of a valedictory, all at once. And in it, he reflects on the people who have taught him, uh, on all the different ways teaching can happen, and and the lessons he's learned over decades of thinking and writing uh, and reflecting about the Holocaust. And here, I guess I should say, maybe lessons is a word, but maybe not the only word. And we'll ask him about that as we go along. It's it's a rich book, um, and we're only going to have a chance to dip our toes into it, but but I think it's well worth exploring, and, and, and I'm looking forward to doing that. So, John, welcome to the show again, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. I'm really delighted to be with you again. This is an important show you do, and I'm honored to be with you. Well, you've, uh, you've been with us before, but it's been a while. Can maybe, maybe you could take a minute or two or three and just reintroduce yourself to, to listeners who may not know your work. Sure. Uh, I spent my career basically uh, teaching in a small liberal arts college in California called Claremont McKenna College. I'm a philosopher by training, but uh, as I like to say, I'm a philosopher who got tripped up by history, and in particular (laughs) by the history of the Holocaust when I was uh, early on in my uh, career as a young professor. And so uh, for most of my life, uh, 50 years or so, I've spent uh, working on the Holocaust and genocide, uh, bringing the perspectives and training that I had as a young person uh, in the field of philosophy. And I live now in uh, rural Washington state. Uh, I've been retired uh, in quotes for about 10 years, but I continue to be active and I, I love to write and Uh, In the COVID-19 era that we're in, um, I've been able to, as we say, work from home, and (laughs) I continue to enjoy doing that. So I wonder, um, you and I, I guess, are in some ways similar in the sense that we both started our career intending or not recognizing that we would spend our lives thinking about mass violence. I wonder... If you've reflected on what it has meant to your study of the Holocaust, that you didn't start there. Many, many people now, right, Holocaust studies and genocide studies is now a field and people go to grad school. Is it, do you see any different ways that you approach the field given that you didn't start there? Well, I think so. I think it has to do with the fact that uh, my approach to uh, the Holocaust comes by uh, 
the path of, of, of philosophical studies. Mm. Um, and at first, when I was uh, training in philosophy, uh, the Holocaust was not primarily on my mind. Genocide was not primarily on my mind. But uh, questions about justice and suffering and evil uh, definitely were in the mix. So as I look back, I can see that although it took me some time uh, to take the turn that I did in uh, moving into Holocaust and genocide studies, my early preparation in philosophy sort of set me up for that when the when, when the Holocaust, as I like to say, and genocide found me more than I found them. It was as if the things I was studying and thinking and reading and uh, experiencing uh, were sort of uh, preparing me for uh, this turn that my personal and professional life took when I was in my early, early 30s. And I really began to concentrate uh, specifically on the Holocaust. So this, I think you've been on the show three times. This book is different. So, so tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write this book at this time, and, and how did you try and think through it and, and organize it and structure it? Um, I'm a person who has been uh, deeply influenced by books. Mm-hmm. And one of the books that uh, affected me very deeply uh, is a book by uh, Raoul Hilberg, one of the, uh, the great uh, pioneers and uh, s- scholars of the Holocaust. Uh, he's best known for his three-volume, uh, multiple-edition book called The Destruction of the European Jews. But I was very impressed uh, about 20 years ago when uh, Hilberg published a small book called Sources of Holocaust Research. And uh, what he did in this book was to reflect on the, on the sources. They were primarily for him documents that had informed and influenced his understanding of the Holocaust. And he talked about these as sources of his, um, his understanding of how the destruction process had taken place. I used this book some in my teaching, and it, it left a, a deep impression on me uh, just because of the, of the approach that Hilberg took, where he was stepping back to look at the, um, the things that had influenced his understanding of, of the Holocaust and the, and the destruction process that uh, was central to it. And as I grew older and began to reflect back on the fact that, you know, I'd spent about 50 years now working on on the Holocaust, I realized uh, that I have sources of of Holocaust, not research specifically, but what I came to call insight. And my sources were uh, books, testimonies, people, um, events a whole variety of things that I realized had really uh, influenced and informed my thinking about the Holocaust and and what I had uh, taken away from my study of that event. And so I thought, you know, maybe I've got a book here that uh, is about sources 
of what I came to call Holocaust insight. So Hilberg was kind of in the background of this as a, a, a person who had written a book that uh, became sort of an example for me of something that maybe I could and needed to write, if only for myself, about the, uh, the sources of um, understanding that had informed and influenced my uh, grasp of, of the Holocaust and its implications. And so that was the, the impetus behind it. I, I worked on the book for a couple of years and it appeared uh, earlier this, this year in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you mentioned this, for this, this idea of insight. Um, maybe let's start a discussion of the book there. What do you, what do you mean when you say Holocaust insight? Um, the epigraph for my book uh, comes from uh, a proverb in the Hebrew Bible, <clears throat> which says, whatever else you get, this is in the English translation that I use, whatever else you get, get insight. And uh, insight for me is a word that refers to an understanding that goes deep down. Uh, it, it has to do with um, the kind of grasp that one gets after living with something for a long time, thinking through something for a long time, and uh, realizing that you have a, a perspective or uh, a grasp of things that uh, still may, may be full of questions and uncertainties, but, but it has... Uh, the, the quality of a perspective on things. It, insight isn't reducible, I think, to uh, lessons. We often talk about, you know, are there lessons from the Holocaust or lessons from genocide? It's, it's bigger and, and broader than, than the concept of lessons, I think. Uh, the notion of insight, as I grasp it, uh, turns out to be. But it, it entails... Uh, in a, in a nutshell, a kind of broad uh, perspective or understanding of things that, as I say, kind of goes deep down uh, so that it, 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 it involves uh, the, the emotions, the feelings, the uh, uh, ethical outlooks, uh, maybe even the spiritual understanding that a person may get from uh, encountering and confronting uh, an event or an experience that that is immense in its uh, scope and implications. So as you talk about the insight you gain, the the first three chapters in some ways seem to me a conversation. And it's a conversation that the the, uh, people who are featured in those chapters are having with each other and a conversation you're having with them. Uh, And these are conversations about faith. Uh, and the implication of the Holocaust for faith. Um, I'd like to start with something you write. You say, no example of mass murder exceeds the Holocaust in raising so directly or so insistently the question of how or even whether such a catastrophe can be reconciled with God's providential involvement in history. Um, 
you start with Richard Rubenstein and his attempt to wrestle with this question. Um, can you say something about how he tried to answer questions of, about God and faith in the light of the Holocaust? Yes, to do that, I, I need to go back a little bit into mm -hmm. my uh, own biography uh, because uh, Rubenstein is the first person I discuss in the book as uh, one of the key sources of my Holocaust mm. insight. Uh, in 1966, uh, as I was finishing up my uh, PhD work at Yale University, uh, Rubenstein published a very important book called After Auschwitz. Uh, I read that book when I was you know, finishing up my graduate study, and I was fascinated by it. And a few years later, uh, but before I had kind of fully immersed myself in study of the Holocaust, I actually wrote something about uh, Rubenstein and his uh, explorations in, in after Auschwitz. And uh, Rubenstein has become a close and dear friend. Uh, we have collaborated together in writing projects and uh, known each other for, for a long, long time now. And he's been a, a deeply influential uh, friend and uh, thinker for me, and very definitely one of my uh, sources of Holocaust insight. One of the things that Rubenstein stressed about the Holocaust was that uh, the people who were targeted by the Holocaust, the Jewish people, uh, are people who have had their identity profoundly shaped by, by their religious tradition. And so the fact that the, uh, uh, the Jews were Hitler's targets, uh, for Rubenstein, who is himself an ordained rabbi, uh, raised, among other things, profoundly religious questions. Uh, because the, the the tradition that uh, Jewish people have had religiously has suggested that there is a, a special relationship between God and Jewish people, a covenant. Uh, Rubenstein, uh, reflecting on the Holocaust, uh, came to the conclusion that the, um, the perspective, the, the theology of a covenantal relationship between the Jewish people and God uh, was no longer credible. The, the Holocaust, uh, which was not the first uh, event of a kind that had called into question that covenantal relationship, but for Rubenstein, the Holocaust became um, kind of a pivotal moment that seemed to shatter uh, a longstanding tradition religiously. That is also a tradition that has informed not just Judaism and uh, a Jewish religious and philosophical thinking, but has deeply influenced the Christian tradition, which happens to be the tradition that I grew up in and that I you know, still identify with. So Rubenstein's reflections on the shattering effect of the Holocaust were um, a, a tradition that had uh, deeply influenced and informed, uh, especially Western civilization for centuries, was for my encounter with Rubenstein's thinking was uh, 
was was fundamental. Uh, it, it started in a way that seemed like it was not uh, so central for me, but Rubenstein grew in importance uh, to me as my uh, life continued and I began to move from my training in 1966 as a young PhD in philosopher into a professor in his early 30s who uh, took a turn that that it that took me directly and uh, permanently into the field of Holocaust and genocide studies. Rubenstein, just to, just to add a note on yeah. this, uh, Rubenstein, um, uh, I think, uh, has ended up with an outlook that is still uh, rooted in Judaism. Uh, Rubenstein uh, uh, had questions about the covenantal relationship between God and the Jewish people. He even has deep questions about you know, the reality of, of, of God, but he still identifies uh, to this day with Jewish tradition. And I think he does this in a way that uh, to me is uh, reminiscent of some of the themes that uh, I also talk about in the book that come from the uh, French philosopher and, and uh, literary figure Albert Camus. And at the same time as you're working with and engaging with Rubenstein, you're you're getting to know and then know better Elie Wiesel. Um, how, how did you meet Wiesel? Um, I met Wiesel, um, this is fitting with an earlier theme that we've talked about. I met Wiesel first through his writings. Mm. And uh, it was a, a college professor, a friend of mine, Frederick Sontag, uh, who also he and I later taught together and wrote together and, and did a variety of uh, things together. It was Frederick Sontag who suggested to me one day in the early 1970s that he thought I might be interested in reading some of Elie Wiesel's writings. And uh, so, I, as I like to say, I always did what my professors told me to do when they suggested <laughs> books I should read. So um, I followed Frederick Sontag's suggestion and I uh, began to read Elie Wiesel. I did this in the summer of 1972 at the time that I was about to become a father for the second time. Mm. I, my spouse was uh, about to give birth to uh, a daughter. Uh, I have an older child who is a son, but I was, I was reading about Wiesel's experiences at a time when you know, my life was going forward very nicely. I was a successful young professor. I had a family. I had a good career going. And uh, I was, and then I was reading and following my professor friend's suggestion, I was reading about uh, the antithesis of everything that I was experiencing. I was mm -hmm. reading about the destruction of hope, the destruction of family, loss of uh, opportunity, uh, and, the, and the destruction of a way of life. And th this was a kind of uh, collision in my experience that eventually uh, led to, uh, as I like to think of it, my life taking a, both a, a professional and a personal turn. And the turn was directly into uh, the uh, field of, of uh, study of the Holocaust. And it was a very simple kind of thing. 
I was reading Wiesel, and he's he's talking like Rubenstein had done, although in a very different way, about how his uh, how Wiesel was talking about how his experiences in the Holocaust had had totally changed his uh, religious outlook, mm. and I was experiencing a, a version of this as a a young Christian philosopher. And I, I said, I've just got to find out more about this history and about this experience. And so that's what happened for me. And I plunged into it. And my reading took me all sorts of places, including into the reading of uh, the writing of Ralph Hilberg and, and a lot of other people. And it was a, a professional change for me because it reoriented what I was doing as a scholar and a teacher. And it was a personal uh, challenge because I realized that study of the Holocaust was challenging my own identity mm. as a Christian. And I still live with that. And uh, I, I was having to find out more about this event, partly because a tradition that was meaningful to me uh, had ended up being deeply, deeply implicated in the uh, genocide against the Jewish people. And that is a dilemma and a pain that uh, haunts me still and uh, keeps me kind of working on these, uh, these topics and questions. Yeah, one of the, the the subject of your next, and we'll come back to Wiesel in a minute. But the subject of your next chapter, Franklin, and I, I don't know if is it Littell or Littell, Little, Little, Franklin not, Littell. Littell. Uh -huh. um, I, I've read Rubinstein and, and Wiesel. I've never read Littell, but you quote him as saying, "The Holocaust is the unfinished business of the Christian churches, the running sore unattended by its leaders, and weakening to its constituents." Um, he wrote this a while back. Is, is this still true? The relationship between uh, Christianity and Christians and the Holocaust is uh, a long history uh, and an unfinished history mm -hmm. and in many ways uh, a, a deeply unsatisfying history. Uh, let me contextualize it just a little bit by observing that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, just about the time that the Corona 19 uh, or COVID 19 uh, pandemic really uh, hit the world, uh, the Vatican had opened its archives about uh, Pope Pius XII, was the uh, controversial and, and I would say problematic uh, Pope during the uh, Nazi era. And uh, the reason why the opening of these archives has been so long awaited and was uh, anticipated with so much eagerness by uh, scholars was that it was hoped that with the opening of these uh, archives, we would at last get some further insight about uh, who Pius XII was and what his posture amounted to uh, during the, uh, the time of the Holocaust. So that work has been put on hold a little bit because of the pandemic. Yeah. But uh, it's it, the reason I mention it at all here in response to your question is that uh, the relationship between uh, Christianity and, uh, and the Holocaust and the Jewish people and the genocide is fraught and vexed. 
because uh, in general, it's understood that, uh, as I like to put it, absent Christianity, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust. Mm -hmm. The uh, long history of uh, Christian animosity toward Judaism and uh, the Jewish people uh, only became really uh, corrected uh, to the extent that it has been because of the catastrophe of the, you know, what the Nazis called the final solution of the Jewish question. So uh, this, this remains uh, a kind of an, an open wound in, in many ways. But the, one of the problems is that for contemporary Christianity, it, it remains uh, ignored. It, it hasn't been addressed in the way that it should be. And this was Littell's mission to go back to Franklin Littell. He was a, a Christian theologian, historian who had spent time in Germany as Hitler came to power and later after the war as an advisor to uh, the American occupation force in uh, uh, the defeated Nazi Germany. And this influenced Littell very deeply because he became aware of the complicity of the uh, Christian churches in Germany, the complicity of those churches with the Third Reich. And his mission became to uh, try to understand that, to call attention to it, and to try to deal with um, what he called in uh, his best-known book, um, The Crucifixion of the Jews. <clears throat> that book was uh, Littell's attempt to uh, try to come to terms with uh, Christianity's complicity uh, in the Holocaust. It was a book that was published in the mid-1970s, and it left an influence on people of, of my generation who were slightly younger than Littell, um, but a, a younger generation of uh, Christians who were sensitized by Littell and some other people to the, the need for Christianity to confront uh, the Holocaust. And so Littell became another of the sources of Holocaust insight for me because um, I learned from him that my own identity as a Christian required me to uh, grapple with the Holocaust and its implications. <clears throat> so, so you mentioned COVID-19. I, I, I will just briefly take a break and, and mention to the listeners that like so many other podcasters and, and even radio broadcasters, one of the impacts is that I've been forced out of my office and into my home uh, and doing this in a hall, in a podcast closet, which apparently is too close to an outer wall. So if you hear a lawnmower in the, in, in the background, I apologize. <laughs> it should be, should be done soon. Um, one of the things that comes out of your essays on Rubenstein and Wiesel is the sustained interrogation of the Holocaust as a challenge and as a, I don't know, inspiration is not the right word, but as a, as, as something that, forces Jews to come to terms um, with this experience. How Do you have a sense of why Christians have been less willing to do that kind of reflection? It's a good question, and uh, it, it, it varies depending on what else is going on in the world. Mm. 
there was a time when Littell wrote his book, uh, The Crucifixion of the Jews in 1975. I think there was, at that time, there was much more willingness and openness uh, on the part of Christians to uh, grapple with this uh, in the, um, it wasn't too much later, uh, the, the Lutheran church in particular had to grapple with the fact that Martin Luther had mm -hmm. Uh, written in ways uh, that were very hostile to uh, Jews and Judaism. Uh, some of his texts were picked up by the Nazis and, and used. So there was a kind of period in the mid-70s and 80s um, when uh, Protestant Christians were, were thinking more explicitly about the Holocaust and how they needed to address their, their own tradition. And then in the Catholic Church, uh, there were uh, positive developments that took place uh, uh, with the public publication of a document called Nostra Tate that uh, kind of owned up to many of the um, Catholic Church's uh, shortcomings with regard to uh, Jewish, Jewish Catholic relationships. And then uh, as events unfolded going on now into the 21st century, uh, I would say that, that the churches have paid less attention to the Holocaust. Mm. And uh, there are reasons for that. Uh, it just have to do, I mean, as is the case with all of these atrocity events that we study, they eventually recede into the past in some ways. And so there is a struggle to keep uh, attention directed toward them. There's, there are arguments about how relevant is it to keep paying attention to these things. And uh, it's a struggle. Um, so this is a, a, a debate that, uh, that continues, but it remains alive and it, uh, it, it will, will have some renewed attention Partly because, as I mentioned a few moments ago, there's uh, the opening of the archives about mm -hmm. Pius XII. So uh, things come and go a little bit, uh, as we know, in the um, events that involve keeping attention focused on historical events. Uh, I've been interested, for example, uh, I wrote about Albert Camus as one of the sources mm -hmm. of Holocaust insight. Uh, in, in my book. And uh, Camus is suddenly back in um, a central place intellectually in our time here in, uh, in 2020, because uh, Camus wrote a very influential novel called The Play. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are all sorts of comments now about the importance of Rereading Camus and and uh, thinking about this French philosopher who, you know, had always been of interest to many people, but uh, now he's kind of come back into central place in uh, human awareness. So the attention that events get can wax and wane a bit depending on you know what happen what's happening in the larger uh, social and political context. I'd like to come back to Wiesel just for a minute, because at least 
in the United States, in many states anyway, his book Night is the first and maybe only common reading that young people do in school about the Holocaust. It is assigned in many classes in high schools. People read it. My daughter actually read it recently. Uh, and then they leave Wiesel and never come back. So so what would you tell my daughter uh, or, or listeners? What's important about Wiesel's thinking or, or about Wiesel's um, witnessing that they should know after they're done with night? Um, my interest in Wiesel was uh, aroused and sustained by uh, uh, two major things, I think I would say. Uh, Wiesel is a writer who is gripped by the importance of questions. Mm. Uh, this appealed to me very much as a philosopher when I read him. Uh, uh, Wiesel says sometimes that questions are more important than answers uh, because questions you know, keep us moving. They keep us thinking. They, they leave things open. They, uh, they don't uh, prematurely uh, close inquiry. Instead, what they do is they open up inquiry. And I love that part about about Wiesel and his writings. He, he's he's always uh, in in the things that he's writing, and very often in the public lectures that he gave, uh, he he would be exploring questions, and uh, sometimes in frustrating ways, kind of uh, not answering them. Um, and the reason that he wouldn't always, you know end up with answers to the questions was that he thought that the answers were confining and that there was even something dangerous about answers to, to big questions because the answers might make us feel reassured or might make us feel that we knew more than we actually knew. So I think the, 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 uh, The importance of, of questions in Wiesel's thinking is uh, something that makes him uh, a kind of perennial favorite of mine. Related to that uh, is the fact that you can't read Wiesel without uh, encountering religious questions. Yeah. Uh, he was a person who was unabashedly uh, immersed in uh, the traditions of Judaism. Uh, and uh, the questions that he had again and again were questions about that religious tradition, questions about God, uh, questions about the relationship between uh, God and uh, injustice. Um, Wiesel wrote a, a, a play that he called uh, The Trial of God. And uh, the combination of his interest in questions and his interest in his interest in his own religious tradition was that very often uh, in his writings the, the questioning is directed toward God in a way that puts God on trial. But uh, in Wiesel's view, without rejecting God in the process, and I found this uh, very very interesting and. Uh, instructive and insightful. 
uh, in Wiesel's work. It is, however, one of the things that makes some scholars uh, um, less happy with Wiesel than they are with some other people who have reflected on the Holocaust. So not everyone, you know, likes Knight so much. Um, mm -hmm. And not everyone is uh, eager to uh, recommend Wiesel as the person who should be read as often as he is in, uh, in, in this field. In the book, you use the phrase, in spite of joy. What do you mean by this? Yeah, I put the inflection just a little uh, different, not, yeah. not in spite of joy, but in spite of joy as a kind of joy. Um, I, I make this point uh, in the context of thinking about um, the fact that often when we're working in um, Holocaust and genocide studies, we're, we have the problem of encountering uh, despair and realizing that no matter how hard we try, uh, we don't seem to emerge victorious against uh, uh, the forces that are destructive and murderous. Uh, so uh, two sources of insight affected me here and led me to think about a joy that is in spite of despair, mm. in spite of atrocity. And the, the two sources are um, a Holocaust scholar, philosopher named uh, Philip Halley, for one. Uh, Halley uh, <clears throat> was a person who was uh, deeply influenced by what happened in a French village called Les Chambon, where uh, he learned about uh, French Huguenot Protestants who had uh, helped to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. And he wrote a book about uh, um, that community. <clears throat> he also wrote about ethics. He was a, a philosopher who was interested in ethics. And he, he says at one point, and this puzzled me for a long time, he says, if ethics doesn't produce joy, then it really isn't worth bothering about it. Hmm. And I often I wondered for a long time, what does he mean by that? What, how is it possible that that uh, ethics is only valuable to the extent that it produces joy? It's a puzzling idea. And then I got some uh, insight about this by uh, revisiting uh, Albert Camus. Camus and Halley were. Uh, friendly, they knew each other, and uh, Halley was deeply influenced by Camus. And uh, Camus uh, has a piece that, uh, for me, has become kind of emblem emblematic of an ethical outlook that I appreciate very much. Camus wrote uh, a piece called "The Myth of Sisyphus," mm -hmm. which is a story about a, a figure from uh, mythology who uh, challenges the gods and is, is having to pay a price for that. And the price he has to pay is that he has to roll a boulder up 
up a, a hill, only to have it roll back down. And he is condemned in perpetuity to, have to having to roll the, the boulder back up the hill. Camus reflects on Sisyphus and concludes that a Sisyphus, who is a rebellious person, he says uh, that, that, that he envisions that, um, that, that Sisyphus is happy and that he even experiences joy as he is condemned to carry out this act of pushing that rock up the hill, even though he knows it's going to come back down. And what I, what I take away from this is that it is possible, maybe even important, to experience a kind of deep meaning uh, that can have a quality of joy about it that is found in the act of resistance, the, the act of uh, persevering, even in the face of defeat, against uh, forces that are joy-destroying, life-destroying. So it's it's a form of what I call in spite of joy. It's a it's a kind of feeling that emerges from saying I refuse to let these forces of evil prevail, even if they do prevail, as long as I have life and breath to try to resist them. And in the process, I think it is is possible maybe even important to have the experience of joy in that. And I think this was what Halley meant when he said that if ethics doesn't produce joy, it isn't, it isn't worth it. It isn't worth pursuing. So that for Halley, what I think he was saying is that as you pursue the ethical way of life, even knowing that it, it may not prevail, it has got to give you a deep meaning to be uh, worth persisting and not giving up on that effort. I call that an in spite of joy. So we've talked mostly so far about thinkers and philosophers and theologians, which makes perfect sense. but. But you actually feature historians and history prominently in this book, uh, and you're deeply influenced by a number of historians. Uh, and, and you mentioned Raul Hilberg already, so maybe I'll just use him as an example. Um, what, how has Hilberg personally, and maybe historians broadly, how, how has that shaped the way you understand and investigate the Holocaust? Yes. Um, historians are absolutely essential uh, for understanding uh, or encountering or questioning or inquiring about the Holocaust. They are the people who uh, go to the sources, go to the documents. They are the keepers of the records. They are the uh, people who help us to understand what happened. Uh, they help us understand how it happened, uh, and even to a large degree, why it happened. So I have uh, the greatest admiration for uh, historians, and one of the chapters in, in my book uh, 
is um, devoted uh, to the historians who have uh, influenced me uh, significantly. They include uh, Hilberg, who was actually a political scientist, but who mm, uh, was also deep, deeply immersed in uh, historical research, but also uh, people and friends of mine uh, like uh, Yehuda Bauer and Christopher Browning and Peter Hayes and Michael Maris and Deborah Dwork and you know many many others more more than I can uh, name here, all of whom uh, uh, have uh, helped me enabled me to uh, think about the Holocaust at all. Without them, I would be really uh, ignorant and um, left without uh, um, the knowledge that that. Uh, anyone needs in order to uh, think responsibly about these these things. But my uh, training as a philosopher and as a person interested in religious questions and interested in the, the ethical issues and reverberations of the Holocaust also makes me uh, understand, it helps to give me the insight that uh, uh, historical approaches to um, these events uh, are not the only approaches that can be taken, and they by themselves may not be uh, even sufficient. That there are, are questions that more historical research um, can't address. And so there has to be willingness, the boldness to uh, try to explore them from, from other angles. And these include uh, literature, art, uh, psychology, uh, philosophy, religious studies. Uh, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, the study of the Holocaust and the study of genocide and mass atrocities is, is an enterprise that does not belong, cannot belong to any one academic discipline. It requires uh, teamwork. It requires uh, complementarity, uh, cooperation that involves a lot of different uh, approaches if we are to achieve uh, the kind of understanding and insight that we get by inquiring about these events. Yeah, and that's maybe a point to cite a conversation um, you mentioned in the book with a co-author of yours, Carol Rittner. Um, I, I don't know that you had edited anything with her at the point she made this, but but you say right after your book, Holocaust, Religious and Philosophical Implications came out, you were talking with her and Rittner asked you, where are the women? Um, and I don't remember exactly that you described your answer, but I picture you kind of silent for a moment as you wrestled on the phone with that question. How, how then has that question shaped, shaped your work on and thinking about the Holocaust, and is it is it just a new set of material to analyze, or does it shape or reshape the kind of guiding frames you use in thinking about the subject? <clears throat> One of the things that uh, uh, I think is a uh, an insight that I gather from all the work that I've done on the Holocaust, uh, and this could apply to other 
a genocides too, but I think uh, I, I feel it particularly with regard to the Holocaust is the vastness of this event. Mm. Um, that may, that might seem obvious, but uh, for me, uh, the vastness has grown as uh, I have um, studied and found that my study uh, has had to expand in ways that I didn't first imagine. And one of the ways that uh, my work has had to expand has involved what we would call presently kind of an, an openness to uh, the gendered dimensions of the Holocaust. Uh, when I was working on this uh, early on, uh, there wasn't very much attention paid to uh, what had happened to women or what the role of women in the Holocaust was or uh, how women, uh, women's perspectives in scholarship might uh, affect and change and alter our understanding of what was going on. Uh, but now, uh, you know, 30 or 35 years later, this is one of the ways in which the field of Holocaust studies, and I would say it's true of genocide studies too, is different than it was, uh, you know, decades ago. Because uh, today, you, you, you simply can't begin to understand what had happened in, uh, in a genocide, or in the Holocaust in particular, without trying your best to take into account uh, what happened to women and children and uh, men and people of different sexual orientations and things of that kind uh, as well. But it wasn't always that way in, the, in this field. So when Carol Rittner, uh, early in the uh, 1990s, I guess, you know, asked me about one of the books I'd worked on, Where Are the Women?, um, this came as a kind of uh, a jolt of recognition for me. And uh, one of the things that happened was that uh, Carol Rittner and I teamed up, as we've done very often um, in, in uh, work that we've done together. Uh, and we did a book called uh, Women and the Holocaust, which uh, turns out to have had a kind of uh, small uh, but significant part in opening up the field of Holocaust studies to a more uh, inclusive orientation that uh, uh, includes now a, an emphasis on uh, gender and in particular on uh, the roles that uh, women played uh, in, in that particular uh, catastrophe. So um, since that time, uh, I have paid more attention to uh, issues about uh, women and in particular uh, violence against women uh, in genocide and in the Holocaust than, uh, than I would have you know been doing 35 or 40 years ago. So it was a, a place where my uh, understanding of, of the Holocaust had to change in order to be adequate at all 
to, uh, to the history that I was trying to uh, confront and grasp. And it has to do with uh, this theme that uh, I take away from my uh, study of the Holocaust, that the, the vastness of this event, uh, if anything, keeps growing. Um, that's maybe that. Yeah. So, so it is a vast subject, but in many Americans' eyes, it gets condensed into one place, and that's Auschwitz. Yes. Um, and of course, several you, you feature several uh, witnesses or survivors or uh, Wiesel and Levy and others. Um. Whose experience uh, is is broadly the experience and Delbo the, the experience is what many that's what people read that's their image in their mind they've seen Schindler's List uh, where there's that moment in Auschwitz um, and yet one of the things we've discovered over the last decade is that that experience is an a Holocaust experience but that there are many other kinds of Holocaust experiences. So, so what is, what do you think we should do with this image or place of Auschwitz uh, as we think about the Holocaust and as you think about ethics? Well, I think you, I think you put it very well that one, and this is one of the things that uh, goes with uh, the theme about vastness and the, uh, the other related theme that there, there just isn't closure to, uh, our understanding about about the Holocaust. We keep learning new things about it, uh, about what happened, and uh, this is where the historical research is is so important that it be uh, sustained and supported, and uh, that it continue. So to go back to your your point, there 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 was uh, a time, and it still exists to some extent, where where Auschwitz was kind of uh, the emblem of the Holocaust. And what it suggested was massive, uh, uh, industrialized uh, uh, destruction, uh, industrialized in the sense that uh, Auschwitz was a place where almost on an assembly line basis, it turned out, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were, uh, were gassed and, and uh, destroyed. Uh, but as we've learned more, uh, it isn't that Auschwitz is displaced as uh, an important uh, location for uh, this genocide, but it is uh, obviously the case now more than maybe we understood uh, 30 years ago, uh, one of many, many places. And uh, some of the places um, are sites where what has come to be called by some the Holocaust by bullets took place, um, shooting sites uh, where, you know, it turns out many, many thousands of people were, were murdered, uh, not in gas chambers, but simply by shooting squadrons. It's not that we didn't know about those uh, shooting squadrons before, but the extent of what was done 
by those um, squads of killers has become uh, increased in, in, in our awareness of its extensiveness. And so um, the Holocaust is now uh, an event that can't be uh, reduced if it ever was reduced uh, to a place like Auschwitz. Uh, nevertheless, Auschwitz, I think, does remain as a uh, important, uh, undeniably important uh, location for the Holocaust and an important symbol of uh, what the Holocaust aimed for, which uh, was a, um, a, an industrialized destruction of an entire people that could have been allowed to uh, continue in the way that it was intended. We've talked about books and people as sources of insight, but but maybe we could spend just a moment talking about place. Um, you, you talk about visiting some of the places that you've been studying. Uh, and in particular, you tell a story about visiting Auschwitz uh, and then seeing a rainbow. I wonder if you could tell listeners that story and, and say something about what it means to you. I think uh, places are very important uh, uh, in all sorts of ways for anyone who studies the Holocaust. I, there was a time when I felt a real uh, need to visit uh, mm. some of the places where things had happened that I was studying about. And uh, I thought, well, if I could do that, if I could visit those places, then I would really understand things much, much more. Uh, what I found uh, was also an insight that emerged, which was that, yes, it was important to visit these places, but it was not necessarily the case that I understood anything more by visiting them. I, I did understand some things, but it wasn't that by, by going to Treblinka or going to Warsaw, Poland, or uh, being in the, uh, what was at the time, the USSR, uh, that my, my knowledge of the Holocaust automatically increased because of that. Uh, but I did uh, did have experiences at those places that were uh, insightful, and uh, one of them that I remember uh, took place at Auschwitz. I was traveling with a group of uh, other Holocaust scholars, uh, and we were uh, in Auschwitz, actually at, at the place in Auschwitz called Birkenau, which was the part of the 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 vast complex there uh, that was the, the place where the uh, killing center, the gas chambers uh, were located. And we were there one afternoon and uh, as a group of uh, Jewish scholars were gathering together to uh, say Kaddish, which is the traditional uh, Jewish prayer for the dead, uh, uh, this was happening during a thunderstorm, and as that uh, a prayer was being said on that occasion, a rainbow came out over that uh, that site, and that image has <coughs> never left me because 
uh, of the juxtaposition of the beauty of the rainbow and the uh, horror of the place. The rainbow is uh, a symbol of uh, hope. It's a symbol that has biblical uh, implications. Uh, when the uh, great flood takes place that nearly destroys the, uh, the world, uh, a rainbow comes out. So the image of a rainbow over Auschwitz, which I'm sure happened during some days mm. when the destruction process there was underway. Uh, this is a haunting image for me. Yeah, I'm reminded in, uh, I think, if I'm remembering right, uh, Primo Levi has a chapter in his book uh, simply titled A Good Day. And it is a reminder that we need to be nuanced and open in, in thinking about experiences. Um, we're nearing the end of our time, uh, but I'd like to ask, uh, in, in, in your chapter on uh, Kaufman and Delbo, you talk about rights. And you talk about, you, you suggest, I think, that, that rights only become meaningful when enforced by people uh, with the ability or maybe the power to enforce them. Um, is that a, that can be read very pessimistically, um, or maybe not. Um, how, maybe you could say something about how you came to that conclusion and, and what you mean by that. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll come back to uh, uh, Kaufman and, and Delbo yeah. in just a second, but um, I want to reference another person I, I write about, which is a way of getting at kind of the experience of pessimism and, and human rights. Uh, uh, toward the end of the book, uh, I write about a, a Jewish philosopher who mm. was also uh, a survivor of Auschwitz. His name uh, is Sean Amari. And Amari was <clears throat> tortured uh, by, by the Gestapo before he was sent uh, from Belgium to Auschwitz. And he, he writes about how his experience of torture, uh, he says, uh, uh, destroyed his trust in the world. And uh, for for, for Amari, this meant that uh, you couldn't just assume that there was such a thing as human rights. Uh, trust in the world uh, was destroyed, he thought, by his experience of torture and, and by the Holocaust. But yet the, uh, the notion of, of human rights uh, uh, continues, it persists, and even in some ways after the Holocaust and after genocide with greater intensity, that is the need for, uh, for human rights to be affirmed and to be upheld and defended uh, is, is greater than, than ever, even in a world where uh, you know, trust in the existence of things like human rights may be uh, compromised, if not, if not lost. So I think that um, the, the takeaway for me, the insight and uh, Sarah Kaufman, Charlotte Delbo, uh, John Amari are thinkers who reflect very deeply on this. Uh, they're, they're a little bit like uh, Elie Wiesel and God. They don't want to give up on the notion of human rights. 
because to do that would be to uh, uh, to to let despair prevail, to let evil prevail. So uh, they still want to retain the idea of, of rights, but insist that the only way that uh, human rights uh, can be credible is if human beings are prepared to defend them, to resist the powers that would destroy them, to uh, affirm their importance in spite of all the things that seem to call them into question. And I think that's a credible position to hold. Uh, it seems to be an important position to hold. It's a little bit like Sisyphus uh, pushing that rock up the hill. Is it's important to affirm the reality and the existence and importance of human rights, especially um, in spite of the fact that they are under threat perpetually. Well, that seems a good place to end. So I'll ask you the last two questions I always ask people. One is, um, and I'm going to rephrase this a little bit because I've asked you this question in another form before, but uh, so I know this is an impossible choice, but but for non-specialists, people who are not, um, many of our listeners are uh, studied history or, or political science or philosophy in, in, as an undergrad, but then went off into business and, 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 and are not specialists. What what of these books would you suggest for somebody who who is interested in the subject but but maybe doesn't have the a, a lot of background in it? Where should they start? Okay, I, I'll make uh, three or four quick suggestions yeah. here that that I think could be interesting uh, experiences for uh, for anyone to have if they were uh, exploring things that are related to what we've been talking about. I mentioned the uh, philosopher, ethicist, Philip Halley. Uh, his name is spelled H-A-L-L-I-E. He wrote a wonderful book, which has uh, two different titles. It uh, can be found in paperback still. Uh, in one of its forms, it's called The Eye of the Hurricane. Mm. And in another form, it's called Tales of Good and Evil help and harm. Um, this is a book that is um, um, a great read. Uh, it, it, it talks about uh, Halley's experience as a, um, a member of the American army during World War II. It, it talks about his uh, experiences in studying the village I mentioned called Les Chambon, where the uh, French uh, people helped to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. And it even has some uh, linkages to uh, Halley's friendship and uh, uh, relationship with Albert Camus. So The Eye of the Hurricane, Tales of Good and Evil, Help and Harm by Philip Halley is, is a good, good place. Uh, in line with, with other things that are being recommended presently in our Kind of pandemic phase. Uh, Albert Camus' novel *The Plague* is a good, is a good read. That uh, anyone reading it, I think, will see how uh, it has some possible connection to uh, World War II and the Holocaust. Um, so I'd recommend that. 
And then for something, uh, two things that would be completely different. If some of your readers are interested in poetry, uh, I found very helpful reading the poetry of an American poet named Kay Ryan. In particular, a book of her poems called The Niagara River. These are poems that don't have explicit reference to the Holocaust, but they are uh, poems that can be read uh, in a way that uh, relates to that, uh, to that disaster and catastrophe. And uh, she's a wonderful poet. Her poems are simple but profound. And then last of all, uh, I would mention an artist, uh, an artist by the name of Samuel Bach, B-A-K, who is a prolific artist who, uh, in one way or another, always has Holocaust on his mind. And uh, he's done an amazing uh, array of, uh, of paintings. And uh, as as one person has said of Bach, Bach is an artist who paints questions. He paints questions. It's a really apt way of getting at what um, Samuel Bach is doing. And his his paintings are available in, in catalog format in a wide variety of places. Anyone who would just Google the name Samuel Bach, B-A-K would, would come up with lots of leads that would be fascinating to explore. Well, it sounds like I have a, a, a good list of things to do this weekend. Um, and at the beginning, I framed this as, this book as kind of a valedictory, but I suspect this is not the last book you'll write. In fact, I know. What are you working on now? Yeah, I'm working on a project right now. In fact, I'm expecting today to get the age proof for it. Uh, it's a project with Carol Rittner, the person uh, I mentioned uh, earlier a time or two, uh, a very amazing woman who um, I've had the privilege of collaborating with on projects for some time. Uh, the, the new book that's coming out is a collection of essays, and the title is called Advancing Holocaust Studies. The project here was that uh, Carol and I uh, invited a group of uh, Holocaust scholars to reflect on um, what, what needs to happen in the fraught times that we are in, mm. in 2020, to advance the field of Holocaust studies. Indeed, does it even make sense to talk about trying to do that in the fraught times that we are in? So uh, we asked people to reflect and we gathered them together to talk about, you know, what is Holocaust studies for? What are its purposes? What are its goals? What are its uh, assumptions? Particularly in 2020 and moving forward in a time that is full of all kinds of difficulties, including now the the uh, novel coronavirus pandemic that is uh, plaguing us. And so that's what this book is about. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to read. We have a good group of uh, scholars who have uh, decided uh, 
to contribute to the project and uh, it'll be out later this summer. Well, that sounds like a, a fascinating and important book, and I hope that you and or maybe you and Carol will be um, willing to come back and talk about it on the show. Um, That'd be great. I think maybe you deserve, I may need to start some kind of frequent guest card where you get some kind of discount, but of course the podcast is free. So until then, stay safe and be well. And listeners, we've been listening to an interview with John Roth uh, about his new book, Sources of Holocaust Insight, published by uh, Cascade Books. Uh, until next time, uh, when I'll be with you to talk with uh, Gabrielle Finder and Alexander Prusin about their book, Justice Behind the Iron Curtain, Nazis on Trial in Communist Poland. Uh, until then, stay safe, uh, and I'll talk to you again soon.